What's going on and welcome back to RizzoCast. I'm Steven Rizzotto. This is episode number 47 and on the 47th show we are joined by none other than Mark DeLuke. He's a co-expert for Around the Foghorn, which is the fan-sided site that covers the San Francisco Giants. And he is doing something pretty awesome this week. He is pretty big on prospects. And uh, this week is Prospect Week at Around the Foghorn, where he is writing a few different articles, covering a few different topics related to the San Francisco Giants pipeline. This is the first ever Giants Prospect Week. There's a lot of in-depth coverage he's having. Uh, Every day there's a new article, State of the Giants System, Five Giants Draft uh, Trends, Five Strongest Positions, Unranked Watch List, um, Mark's Prospect Tendencies when uh, he's kind of constructing all of this, Top 31 Prospects, Five Potential Draft Targets, A Fan Chat with Mark, and finally, a a podcast to uh, finalize the week there. Mark, what's going on? I know you're you're really busy this week with all of that. I had trouble just saying that in one breath. What's going on with you? How are you doing? A lot of writing. Um, a lot, of, you know. It's the thing about prospects, we, uh, especially like the ranking season, is it's always you know when it's going to come. You know, like I knew uh, when I was going to try to release it, and so you know, you spend the off season, you're gathering data, you're trying to obviously talk to industry sources, you know, try to gauge sort of you know where different evaluators are at. You know, obviously since people inside the organization are really, you know, not likely to speak about players you're working you know, with other organizations and trying to gauge, you know, and how much is, how familiar is this uh, person with, you know, a Giants player or whatnot. So, you know, I have a lot of time spent on it, but the, the writing part, I always push off a bit. And so, so this week is, is a lot of kind of going back and putting all these things into the sentences beyond just the bullet points I have in my notes with, you know, from various conversations or reading other people. Yeah, for sure. So what kind of started your fascination with prospects? I know there's a ton of people that, that of course, scout for a career, obviously, mm-hmm. but there's also people in the media that cover, you know, prospects on a daily basis and get paid for it. So what is kind of your fascination and how did you get started with evaluating prospects? Yeah, I mean, my dad's a diehard Giants fan. And so that kind of just, you know, passed on to me just, you know, through, you know, kind of following his passion for sports. He grew up in Sonoma, Giants, Warriors, 49ers fan. And so that I just kind of followed in that. And one of I'm born and raised in Hawaii. And so one of the things about that is, uh, you know, there's not a lot of professional sports out here. And, you know, we we try to make since most of my family it was in the Bay area and still is for a, to a certain degree, we'd go there you know, every summer for about a month or two and, and see family. And so, you know, I'd catch a San Jose giants game here and there, a San Francisco giants game, especially when they were bad and tickets were a bit cheaper. Um, but, you know, being out here, the one thing we did get was Hawaii winter baseball for a, about a three-year pocket there. And so I got to see Buster Posey the winter after he was drafted by the Giants. You know, Roger Kieschnick was, was another uh, big Giants prospect uh, from that draft. So, you know, kind of that started it, I'd say. I mean, I've always been kind of a, a junkie for kind of the behind the scenes, like figuring out the salary caps of various sports and figuring out how things work. You can see a bunch of the Baseball America prospects handbooks behind me. And so that kind of just got me on this path. And I sort of saw myself a few years ago as I went off to college, heading into a front office, sort of trying to maybe pursue to be a scout and maybe work my way up the chain that way, or, or you know, um, in maybe combining some analytics tools um, to, you know, work in the front office that way. And I've kind of moved away from that. But as I moved towards writing, I realized that kind of my experience gave me a good set of eyes to write about this stuff because I was approaching this for so long as like, I want to get better so I can be contributing well to a front office, to a big league team. And now that I'm writing, I'm like, all right, let me share the perspective that, you know, I was, I would have hoped to bring and sort of the things I've learned that way. Yeah. there We're like five minutes in and you're already dropped Roger Kieschnick's name. (laughs) So this is pretty awesome. Yeah. That was, by the way, just a side note, that was a great, like, time for giants prospects like Mm -hmm. in in terms of like like irrelevance right like it's fun (laughs) naming off 
Francisco Pagero yeah. and Tommy Joseph and, and all those Nick Noonan. I mean, Chris Dominguez, the, the Chris Dominguez. Yes. The corner infielder, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, and that's kind of the sense that I feel like it's fun to talk about prospects because even the ones that don't pan out, I mean, we could go back and look at, you know, how dumb we were, <laughs> how dumb yeah. we, we looked, but um, it's definitely a lot of fun. So yeah, you mentioned your background in scouting, expand more on how you, you know, I don't want to give away one of your articles that no, that's no, coming out this week. Expand more on like kind of how you like to evaluate players and some methods you use while watching a baseball game. Say you're sitting right behind the right. dish. You got your radar gun, whatever you have with you, your stopwatch. How are you evaluating a player? Yeah. And, and I'm happy to do this one. Cause this especially is something it's like, I want to start sort of normalizing people who evaluate prospects talking about not only their process, but like really getting into, all right, where do I tend to go wrong? Right. And, and so, you know, I was someone, you know, I come of age in kind of the, the money ball era, right. When, when, you know, when, if you're growing up, you know, if you're born probably in the, you know, early to nineties to early two thousands, right. You're kind of, you know, baked into fandom is this analytical approach and this new age thing. And, you know, the last few years, like a lot of that's come into question. We've sort of started reconsidering what are the uh, side effects? What, what are potentially the adverse consequences of this approach, you know, both in terms of talent evaluation and also maybe what it's doing to the game. And I think the Astros as an organization are kind of the perfect example of what we've realized, oh, this is when that goes to that um, extreme to a certain degree. And so early on, I was someone who just as a fan, you know, because I couldn't see most of these guys, my process was a lot of, you know, it was box score sounding when I was a kid, you know, I was just looking for guys who walked a lot, who didn't strike out and if they could hit for power. And, you know, over time, you know, there's only so many kind of times you fall in love with uh, a Matt Duffy and that player doesn't become Matt Duffy, who's, you know, actually had a pretty good big league career before you start reevaluating thinking, you know, this isn't as simple as a stat sheet. This isn't as simple as something, you know, you can model up in a simple multiple regression or really any model. And, and so in college, I was lucky enough to be a part of a startup um, originally called the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network. They renamed to Evolution Metrics before they folded. And so for three years, I worked as an amateur scout um, sort of for three draft cycles, primarily watching low tier college, D2, D3 college and, and high schoolers. Here, prep players here in Hawaii. And it was honestly, a, I mean, it's a massive challenge, right? Because their essential model was let's take college kids who love baseball, let's teach them to scout and give them this experience. And I'm incredibly grateful for it because when you learn how hard it is really quickly, like you learn just like, you know, catching your eye for bat speed and things is something that you're really not trained to do and not necessarily thinking about as a fan. But as I, I did it more and more, you, if you see enough players, and, you know, there was, I think, one time I saw, I want to say, 15 games in 10 days was kind of the, the peak of when um, I did it. When you watch that much baseball, you do get bored of baseball, at least I did, and that's probably why I'm not, I ended up not becoming a scout. But also, you begin to sort of just like very small differences in how people perform, whether it's speed, whether it is bad speed, whether it is, you know, the the feel for a breaking ball, they do become a bit easier to discern. And so, you know, really for me, it's what I noticed when I've had a lot, gotten a chance to watch a lot of baseball in a short period of time, because the problem I've had, you know, for most of my life as a fan in terms of, you know, I was a fan, so not thinking about it in terms of scouting terms, but if you only get one game and that's the only real baseball game, especially pro level baseball game you're watching in a short span of time, you know, it's really easy to fall in love with whoever the best player on the field is that day. And you're not necessarily getting a sense for, you know, how they're performing every day or even how to calibrate them relative to other players around the league. And that's been what's so difficult this past couple of years, because, you know, as I've sort of gotten really into this, there haven't been there hasn't been minor league baseball. And so, you know, for the past couple of years, it's been a lot of, you know, even more forcing me to kind of try to you know, build relationships with people who have seen these players or who have a lot of experience in this and then doing a lot of video scouting. And so that's where you know, you're looking for, all right, our guys you know, taking good pitches are when guys are overly aggressive. Is it because they're not recognizing the pitch because they're too confident in their ability to maybe drive a pitch on the outside corner, things like that on the pitching side, you know, you're trying to notice is there a mechanical thing that could change that can maybe add some velocity, you know, are they locating to both sides, uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. And I, 
I, I'm 18. I grew up, I was born in 2002. So that's right around when Moneyball was yep. written. And I, I read the book. And I think that the most interesting thing about Moneyball is at the beginning when Michael Lewis is talking about all the cliches of scouting, mm-hmm. right? You know, good body, hot girlfriend, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting. So how have you, like, is there any like, old school scouting, you know, the majority of, of what am I trying to say here? Scouting is often regarded as an old school tool, right? Yeah. Nowadays, you know, you, you look and there's stats now, you know, these, mm-hmm. these, um, there's, there's analytics that colleges have, they're tracking it track man. Um, mm-hmm. it's all over the place. So how do you blend the two analytics with kind of the old school approach to scouting. Cause I know there's, there's a lot of different ways. Cause if, if it was all new school scouts would be abolished, there would yeah, be none in the stands. So and what there is- are teams that, that have employed that, right? The Astros were kind of the mm-hmm. first to really cut down their scouting um, departments. Um, and yeah, you know, I follow um, someone who was pretty influential for me is uh, the prospect people who've been over at fan graphs, Kyler McDaniel and um, Eric, I want to say long and I've actually never said the name out loud. I think I said it right. But anyway, because th- <laughs> they talk about, you know, how the best approach to me, and they wrote a book uh, called future value as well, th- that I recommend for someone thinking about this kind of thing is that, you know, viewing them as either or is kind of how Moneyball frames it. And, and part of that, I think, is you know how the A's viewed it, but I also think part of it is just you know this is written by Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis is trying to create a narrative, and you know narratives kind of you know are generally more intriguing if people frame them antagonistically, right? And the reality is a lot more complicated. I think one thing that is a common I think misnomer and frustration for as someone who has a quantitative statistical background when people you know kind of dismiss it and just say oh it's just analytics. You know if you look at batting average, if you look at hits. If you look at a guy's scouting report and it says a 60 future value, that is an analytic, like it's an analytic or statistic, yeah. right? Any number you are using is a data point. It's just sort of what we're doing with it. And so, you know, I've, my sort of approach is trying to blend them as best I can. And I have tendencies because I kind of, my foundation is much more in the data analysis side. And I was actually working on my tendencies draft that's going to go up in a couple of days, like you mentioned. And one of the things I'm talking about is I've always been a sucker for two things, age and low strikeout rates. And if you're hitting for power while you're doing that, that's really going to get my attention. And I think my ratings, rankings, fair that at, rankings spell that out in terms of which players are, are a bit higher than you might expect. And, you know, part of that is we know historically that trends to that tends to you know bear out a bit but it's also because i can look at someone like elliot ramos and say if he stalls at double a for the next two seasons and i realize minor league baseball's you know we don't know what this is good luck but let's say he there's full season and he plays at double a and he just doesn't really take a step forward he's still like 23 right he's still 24 like he's the age of joey bart right now where if Joey Bart has two seasons where he struggles at AAA, he's 26. And, you know, we've seen Mike Yastrzemski, we've seen Donovan Solano, right, prove you can still become a contributor later in your career. But there's no doubt that that's a harder trajectory for me to envision in a prospect. And so I'd say those are the big ones where you kind of look, I look for warning signs in the data. You know, I look for one, what player, how old is the player? What's the kind of competition they've seen before? And then who are they playing against? Uh, strikeout rate and walk rate are, are two big ones. Are they hitting for power? But then you do have to really get in and watch the swings, watch the at-bats as much as you can and try to see, you know, I think Gary Brown is a perfect example to use another old Giants prospect name. A guy who tore up at San Jose at high A, you know, the Giants chose essentially to trade Zach Wheeler instead of Brown because they believed in his offensive potential. And Brown had a hitch in his swing, was a bit aggressive. And, you know, some scouts said from, you know, when he was in college, I believe at Cal State Fullerton, that that was going to become a problem against upper level pitching. And it eventually did. And so, you know, you do have to kind of keep those things in mind. I do, though. I try to kind of do 50 50, but I will use analytics to break it. T- or I'll, see, I just fell for it. I used analytics, but I will use sort of the statistic tendencies I have to break ties when I'm saying, you know, these two players, I, I like all, or these three players, I really like them. So who's the youngest is going to break that tie? Or if one has a higher strikeout rate, that one's going to be lower. Or if one is showing a better rate of walking, that one's probably going to be a bit higher. Yeah, for sure. And I think the days of 
scouting in terms of this guy's going to hit 25 and knock in 85. Yeah. I mean, those days are over. Like nobody cares about how many runs you're going to knock in. You know, it's out of context completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, you went that, that went full circle because Gary Brown is now scouting, I believe, with the New York. Oh, Mets. I think so. so yeah, um, that's that's kind of interesting for sure. Um, so let's talk. About, let's get into the, the Giants system here. First few pieces, you gave a lot of credit to Bobby Evans and mm-hmm. that kind of brief era, the bridge between Sabian and Zaidi, the brief era right before the, the, the Zaidi administration. And you gave them a lot of credit. Tell me a little bit more. Uh, bit, God, I'm, I cannot speak English today, it's Mark. All good. The, tell me a little bit more about that, uh, that bridge that you noticed in the Bobby Evans era and, and why that's kind of still, uh, he still kind of has a hand in what the Giants are today. Yeah, I think if anyone gets shortchanged in Giants, to most Giants fans, it is Bobby Evans in mm-hmm. part because, you know, Sabian gets the credit for the World Series team. Sabian gets the credit for the 2002 and, you know, the early Bonds era teams. You know, Evans was an assistant general manager for those three World Series teams as well. He was a, a primary part of that front office, too. And Sabian essentially steps aside and hands the reins to Evans, you know, in frankly, a terrible situation. Uh, you know, he, he hands it over to Evans with an aging roster that Sabian had already mostly signed to extensions um, and a, a farm system that was lacking big time upside and lacking a lot of. Had already been tra- a lot of the top talents had already been traded and moved Sabian had made. And so, you know, Evans goes out and he signs Jeff Samarja and Johnny Cueto in his, his first free agency. Right. And, you know, people will, will look back. I think, you know, the Cueto signing and Samarja signings both have obviously not worked out ideally for the Giants, but I think to, to frame those signings as complete whiffs, I think is also a bit of a mischaracterization, right? Like the Giants needed innings and Samarja gave it to them for two seasons. Then he kind of fell apart near the end. You're, pl- you're whenever you're going to the free agent market, you're generally paying for front t- front line or early returns and, and later losses. And I think, you know, that's what the Giants got, right? Cueto and Samarja were a huge part of why they made the playoffs in 2016 and why, you know, if you wonder what the bullpen looks like, then, you know, you, you wonder where that season ends if it, if it isn't for the meltdown in game four, I believe, of the NLDS against the Cubs. And then he goes out and sign Mark Melanson. You know, he makes the Andrew McCutcheon trade. He makes, you know, the infamous Matt Moore trade. But, you know, when we look back at a lot of these moves, you know, I'm, I'm not saying he won every trade, but I, I think you can see a pretty clear tendency where a few exceptions, the Casey McGee trade, you know, that one mainly oh. parting with Luis Castillo remains to be right. You know, that's no doubt the worst move of his tenure. Although it's worth pointing out the Marlins traded Luis Castillo the next winner for Dan Straley. So, you know, it, it, to, I think I'm, you got to give credit to Castillo and potentially even what the Reds player development system has been able to do to work with him as well. And, you know, he was a huge proponent for expanding the player development staff, for investing in the minor leagues, because he saw how bare the farm system was. And what I credit Zaidi for when he stepped in a bit differently than I think most Giants fans do is they say Zaidi came in and he changed how the farm system worked. He changed the player development apparatus. He changed the scouting department. In truth, Zaidi actually kept a lot of the same people in place, kept expanding and just built upon what Evans had already begun to do with the organization's infrastructure, obviously with some different emphasis. He's you know clearly put a priority on plate discipline, clearly put a priority on putting the ball in play in a way that Evans did not to the same degree. And Zaidi's made a, a number of really good trades. But you know, again, when you look at this farm system, the top prospects, the guys that we're thinking about are mostly acquired either under Evans's tenure or near the end of Sabian's, not Zaidi's. And again, there are some, there's Patrick Bailey's and some of the top picks, but you know, Gregory Santos is acquired in the Eduardo Nunez trade where Evans got Santos and Sean Anderson for three, a rental Eduardo Nunez, right? Like, um, you know, that's a really good trade. We look back at selling Andrew McCutcheon. He trades at the end of the waiver wire, basically trades a month and a half of Andrew McCutcheon for Abiatel Avellino, who, you know, had a cup of coffee with the Giants and Jorge DePaula, who Zaidi would trade for Kevin Pillar the next season. So I do think Evans gets shortchanged a bit because I think when Evans got let go and Zaidi gets brought in, it signals a change from ownership in the organization that they were willing to take a step back finally, willing to say, we're not going to keep betting on trying to win next season. We're going to maybe give 
Zaidi some ch- a, t- a chance to kind of step back and let things reset. And I am left wondering if Evans had gotten that chance, how things would have played out. Yeah, definitely an interesting hypothetical for sure. So Michael Holmes is the new scouting director. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you wrote an article about kind of a few of the trends that we've seen from Michael Holmes thus far. Maybe, maybe point out a few of them. What's some of the, some of the major themes that you've seen under the Michael Holmes scouting director administration? Yeah, well, I'd say the biggest one and the most notable win, I guess the most notable one that Giants fans who follow the big league team closest will be familiar with is on the pitching side, the, the sort of tendency to target secondary pitches above fastball velocity, you know, being okay with a guy throwing 90, 92, you know, 91, 94, but having a good feel for a breaking ball has been a priority at the big league level. We saw this off season with guys like Matt Whistler, you know, and a number of the minor league free agents, you know, Jay Jackson, Dominic Leone come to mind. That's trickle down and that's, played out in Holmes's two drafts as well. The top pitchers he's targeted, you know, the Trevor McDonald's, the Nick Swineys, the Kyle Harrison, excuse me. Um, you know, all of those guys, none of them had or projected to have premium fastballs out, out when they were drafted. Now Harrison to the Giants credit has shown 97 in instructs, but that wasn't something that anyone really talked about leading up to the draft. They all though had a pretty advanced feel for secondary offerings. And I think that's, I'd say the biggest thing that you're seeing a sort of dogma at at the big league level, we're seeing kind of Holmes carry that out on the amateur side. The other thing though, on the offensive side, we're seeing a lot of carryover from John Barr, who was the previous scouting director who has stayed within the organization and played a pretty prominent role in the 2019 draft. We've seen a lot of similar targeted guys who played for three years in college, you know, were pretty strong performers, oftentimes a power over hit profile with a few exceptions to that. You know, they seem to still kind of following a lot of those same patterns. And to be fair, you know, Barr's the guy who drafted Buster Posey and Brandon Crawford and Brandon Belt and lower rounds, Adam Duvall and Matt Duffy and Kelby Tomlinson, you know. So, you know, Barr had a strong track record offensively. It was really the, you know, pitching side of things where he was really never able um, to in what in one of his drafts, the Giants really never added a future big league starter, with the exception of Zach Wheeler. And so that's where you would expect the Giants to need the biggest changes, and that's where we've seen it under Holmes. Yeah, some good points made there. Uh, I like what you said about the one pitch. You know, focusing on a secondary pitch. Mm-hmm. We saw Whistler's eighty-six uh, percent slider yep. usage and Jake McGee's eighty-five percent fastball usage. Uh, And I also think they're getting both, you know, they're getting relievers that could get both hitters out, you know, right-handed and left-handed hitters. The three batter minimum is going to change a lot of things. I think Harlan Garcia gets both left-handed hitters and right-handed hitters out. Jake McGee could do the same thing. So I think that's definitely interesting and a a nice trend too that we're going to see through the minor leagues. How did the alternative training site and COVID kind of mess up any development or did it mess up any development on some of the young talent? Well, uh, that's a we'll see. I mean, we really don't know, right? I mean, we really don't have a precedent for this. And, you know, I, I think the athletic, you know, a few people did an article, I want to say, um, you know, Sarah's Melissa Lockhart, and I think Britt, you're all also. But anyway, you know, kind of looking back at like the wartime breaks that we saw, but in, you know, back to World War II and World War One, but mm-hmm. obviously those aren't, you know, equivalent because, you know, if minor league players, a lot of them were still able to work out on their own or, you know, go to various facilities, you know, wartime, that was obviously not something that a lot of people, you know, were doing, especially at the minor league level. Right. So I I honestly don't have a good answer for you. My, I guess, hypothesis is that we're going to see a strange sort of divergence where you're going to see some prospects who, and, you know, I guess sort of the darker side of this, the darker reality is that I haven't really seen talked about is that a lot of this is going to come along the lines of privilege, right? Like if you got a big signing bonus or if you're from a relatively wealthy family, you were probably able to afford to live with a coach or live in an area with a driveline or a push performance, or you could basically spend the entire year and a half treating it like you had an off season workout. Versus on the flip side, you know, guys who didn't get a big signing bonus or players who can't afford or couldn't afford to do that, who were trying to, you know, pursue their other careers to make ends meet, probably weren't, probably had to work out 
once or twice a week, probably didn't get to see any real high-level pitching. And so I wouldn't be shocked if we see a pretty big group of these top prospects throughout baseball, not just the Giants, have explosive what we seem to be like, this guy was at you know high A, and now he's tearing up triple-A pitching or something to that effect. And then we see the flip side where we see some guys who were doing really well at high A and double-A who they come back and they're struggling to hit short season pitching, or I guess, you know, low A uh, or what was low A now class A <laughs> pitching. And so I, I think, you know, it's really going to be, you know, the individual basis on, on so many of these, because it's ultimately just, you know, what were players able to do based on their circumstances and, and you know, a lot of that being out of their control. And so I think that's really how this is going to play out. And, I, th- I think if that's the case, that probably puts the Giants in a pretty good position because they prioritize prospects at the alternate site in a way that no other team did, right? They had, I think, four or five of their top offensive prospects in the alternate site, basically getting to work with AAA or borderline big league competition. And so I think that's going to pay dividends for those guys. But for the rest of the system, for the vast majority of prospects, excuse me, I think it's really up in the air. Yeah, and I talked to Chris Shaw um, during the season, and he was upset because he was like the only guy on the or one of he was one of two, or maybe he was the only guy from the forty man roster that yeah. was not at the alternative training site. So that gives you an indication on how they did utilize the prospects down there. Um, so starting pitching, uh, is there anything in this system that is more than a mid rotation starter? Because I know we we've seen Seth Corey in and out of the top a hundred. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe not your top a hundred, but major league baseball, you know, mm-hmm. MLB.com's top a hundred. We get some, you know, information about Sean jelly and where he's at and kind of a, a quirky, you know, coming from up top, really tall guy. Um, so where, you know, where is the status right now? What's the status right now of the pitching staff in the minor league level? Is there anybody that is a two, maybe even a mid, maybe even a three, like, is there any promise in this staff or is that something they're going to have to go down, you know, maybe the free agency rabbit hole down the road? Yeah. Well, this is where I guess things get bare um, in that there are some people I talked to who were fairly straightforward and saying they didn't see a future big league starter in the giant system, you know, and, you know, or, you know, maybe a fringe four or five, you know, jelly kind of being that guy, but there were some, there are a lot of people who think Seth Corey's an ACE reliever. They think, um, you know, Gregory Santos, Caribbean Castro are ACE relievers. Frankly, I was beginning to get really excited because I thought Santos and Castro were ready to have breakouts this season after how strong they performed in instructs. And it looks like that's the case, except the giants have seemed to say and hint that those guys are only relievers. Now they're going to let them develop, as relievers. And frankly, that's a bit disappointing to me because Santos has always been someone I've been really high on. Castro was someone who had a really good feel for pitching and I thought could be a four, maybe even a three if everything worked out. And so I kind of had to adjust my rankings accordingly. I I had both of them a lot higher than they end up because it seems like the Giants are signaling they are full-time relievers. Now, I, I will say this. I think that starting pitching is the thing we figured out the least when it comes to projecting prospects. Uh, one of the other things in sort of the tendencies I talk about is, is I go back and I read a lot of these old baseball America prospects handbooks just to see who we got right and who we got wrong. And I'm trying to figure out, all right, you know, some guys just get hurt. Some guys, you know, there's things behind the scenes that we don't know about some guys this, but you know, are there tendencies here and pitching? It's just, there's a lot of risk. And there's also, you know, if I showed you Madison Bumgarner, if I took Madison Bumgarner when he was at his peak in 2014 and I threw him on, you know, a showcase mound, fans aren't going to get excited about it. You know, the, the scouts would, they'd see the feel, they'd see the break, they'd see the deception, but you know, he would, he was, you know, mostly 92, 94 and often 90, 93, you know, with a, a funky arm ankle. And so we I mean, you know, you'd look at that guy and you'd say, Oh, this is going to be a really tough loogie, right? This is going to be maybe a Jeremy Affelt type. I, I don't think we have a firm grasp on that. Obviously scouts, you know, are, are better at this than, than fans watching video, but I do think there's something to be said for it's just we have a, you know, you look at most 
of the top kind of pitchers. I mean, the draft is a perfect example of this. We look back at all of the top 10 picks, the you know, top high school pitchers is always the one people will point to as this high bust category. And again, I think that's a bit deceiving. I actually think teams should target high high school pitchers a bit, a bit more than they do at the top of the draft. That's kind of a tendency for me. Because I think, you know, pitching development is something that one, we've taken a lot of strides in over the past few years and understanding how players can improve to, to maximize deception, to maximize spin and all these other things to the Giants point, though, the top pitching prospect in the system for my ranking is not going to be Seth Corey. It's going to be Kyle Harrison. And, you know, that's a really small sample. Again, I've yet to see this guy play professionally. I've yet to, I've yet to see Kyle Harrison. Right. This is all video and, and what I've heard from people. But it seems like, you know, the people who are in Southern California who, who were watching that region thought if there had been a full spring season, Harrison would have ended up being viewed as a first round prospect, as a first round pick. And that the Giants kind of bet on that momentum when they selected him the third round, and essentially paid him late first round money. And, you know, again, in instructs, he hit 97. And, you know, from what people saw there, they saw the advanced makeup and feel um, you know, for pitching that um, he'd flashed in high school. And so he's the guy who I'd say, if you're looking at a starter, this guy's still a teenager. This guy's now thrown, shown premium velocity in the fastball, but more importantly, has been credited for, you know, the other things as well. So you also mentioned drafting relief pitchers and <laughs> no high cost relievers anymore in the draft. They're not paying, you know, big money for relievers in the draft anymore. Yep. Now that Michael Holmes has taken over and the Zaidi administration has taken over, this I think is a great idea because I feel like relievers are just such chess pieces. I mean, look at right now in camp. There's you could easily point to 20 guys right now that you could throw in a big league bullpen and you're fine with it. So I think, you know, we looked at Trevor Gott. Trevor Gott looked like mm -hmm. a nice find at one point. Um, and now, you know, you put place him on waivers. He gets outrighted back down to Sacramento, keep him in the organization, and you have a chance to add him at the 40-man roster, and that's a competent big league reliever. Um, I Some may differ. Of course, we've seen blowups, but whatever. That's outside the point. But I like this trend. Is this a trend that you see as a, as a positive reflection on where the Giants are heading in terms of scouting relievers? Yeah, I definitely do. And again, you know, with the noted caveats, as I say in the article, we really only have two drafts and really one draft and a weird kind of pseudo draft this past year because of COVID. And so, you know, my main thing with these trends is like things to watch because, yeah. you know, we, we could see Michael Holmes go off and draft three relievers in round seven through 10 this year, or you know, four through five, four and five. And then we're kind of right back where we were. Um, in the bar administration. So I think that's worth pointing out. And again, RJ Dobovich was someone I talk about. They used the fourth round pick on this year, but to me, that's an underslot guy they use to kind of pay Harrison to pay, um, you know, other players. So I, I don't view that in the same way as, you know, like Heath Hembry or Jason Stoffel, who are two high round selections under bar. I, I, I do for the sort of a similar reason is that, look, I think most big league relievers, most of the best big league relievers were drafted, developed, and some even pitched in the big leagues as starting pitchers, right? You know, Andrew Miller is kind of the, the modern kind of turning point, I think, of a lot of people realizing this. Zach but, Britton. You know, yeah, exactly. Zach Britton, right? Aroldis Chapman is signed out of Cuba and, sent, and spends his first year in the Cincinnati Reds rotation before he ends up as a closer. So, you know, I think it's something to be said for is that you know, if you end up in a bullpen, it's probably because the coach, for whatever reason, doesn't think you can handle a six or seven inning, you know, going through a lineup two or three times. Well, you know, if that's a true at the high school, if the high school level, especially, but especially even at the college level, then I think it's worth pondering whether that's going to be an issue going forward. What was interesting about bars, uh, the picks under bar is that a number of guys who were relievers in college, the giants tried to convert back to starting pitchers. Chase Johnson was a closer in the big West who they moved back to the starting rotation. Dan Slania was a closer at Notre Dame who after a couple of years, out of the bullpen for the Giants, they moved to the starting rotation and had glimpses, which I just think, you know, if it had worked, it would have been quite impressive. If, if they could figure that part out, that'd be, you know, you could draft relievers and then turn them into starters. That would be an incredible way to find value in the draft. But I just haven't seen someone have success with that as a model. And so I think, you know, it's more straightforward to say, let's target the starters and figure if the starters don't work out, we'll still have some relievers on our hands. And, and I think that's what we saw towards the end of Barr's tenure. That was something that faded as we got 
you know, deeper into the 2010s towards 2014 and 15. In fact, we saw in Barr's last draft, they draft a bunch of college starters who probably project as relievers in Blake Rivera and Keaton Wynn and, and, and Garrett Cave and players like that. So, you know, I, I do think it's a positive sign because it's recognizing it's a lot harder to find a college reliever who's going to be a big league starter than the other way around. Remember when like every big league offense just couldn't wait to get to the bullpen on mm-hmm. every start. Like now it's just, you don't want to see them, but yeah. like the, the it's such a misconception that, well, I guess it's not a misconception because it is kind of true. As you mentioned that relievers are failed starters and that's, you know, that's believable to a point, but I just think the mentality is now different because these guys, yeah, they get shifted to the bullpen, but their mentality completely shifts. They start throwing harder. They start relying more on secondary pitches it's completely different because you know. people I think are also like, I think it's also a misnomer is that I think there are some starters who wouldn't be very good relievers. Like yeah. I, I think, you know, to treat these things as if they're doing the same job, it's like there's an intrinsically different mental, but also physical thing of, of going in for essentially one inning, whatever the situation is and often pitching for the strikeout, the punch out, you know, versus being someone who you have to have the patience with yourself and, you know, with the team to know if I give up a couple of runs this inning in the first inning, I still got to keep going. You know, there's I, I think it's it's a bit easier to say, you know, or I guess it's easy to say the failed starter thing. But I do mm-hmm. think there's something to be said for it's not as simple as, all right, this guy's a mediocre starter. He'll be a good reliever. Yeah, for sure. So next question I want to ask you is who is the most underrated prospect in this system? I know. I mean. First and foremost, Brandon Crawford was never on top of anybody's prospect list. Matt Duffy was never on top of any uh, prospect list. There's a Adam dozen. Duvall, yeah. Adam Duvall, yep, uh-huh, 100%. There's a ton of people like this for every team. I mean, we could go down each team and find you know five guys that were not big top prospects. So who is that guy in this giant system? I'll give you a few different types of underrated. I'll say, because when we do the underrated thing, we always go to the bottom of the list. I'm actually going to go to near the top of my list. I think Luis Matos is someone we're underrating in part because of the presence of Elliot Ramos and Hunter Bishop, who are former first round picks who play the same position, who've obviously had, you know, longer track records with Ramos and the pros with Bishop in college. And, uh, you know, I guess I'll give this as a spoiler. Matos is my second ranked prospect. I have him above both Bart and Ramos. Um, I think, you know, um, he's someone who has the closest thing to a five tool package that is in the giant system. And so I view him not quite on Luciano, not, not quite on Marco Luciano's tier, but a lot closer than I think people realize going down the, going down the list. I'll, I'll point to someone who I was hesitant to get on board with was skeptical of, and that was Casey Schmidt. Um, the Giants' second round pick in this past year's draft. I, you know, as I sort of looked more into his profile and his potential, I think the, the Giants are, are quite confident in his ability to develop um, a, a strong above average to plus hit tool that will allow his strong power to play. And he's really strong defensively. I think he's someone who we could be looking back and saying he became a lot better um, than we realized. And then sort of after that, we just get to the international free agent signings of the last two years that haven't gotten to play. So, you know, that's the, you know, Adrian... Uh, Sugaste, Rainer Santana, guys like that who, you know, I think if they got in a minor league season last year, there's probably a, a one or two of them who we'd be talking about in the top 10, maybe even higher on this list. It's just, you know, we didn't get that to look at. I'll flip it on you. Overrated. And and this is this mm-hmm. this is really tricky because yeah, I don't know if it would it would fall under the same category as possible bust. Like right. Maybe it does. Maybe it. I don't know. I guess it's different for everybody. I, I don't. I mean, I'll I'll say this. I've been low on Joey Bart since the Giants drafted him, and it's not because I don't think he's going to be a good big league player. It's because I thought he had a much smaller path to being an elite player than I think people gave him credit for. You know, we really. We're talking about him, right, when you, when you saw in college as a guy who wouldn't hit necessarily for a high average but could hit 25 and maybe even 30 home runs if it all came together. And there's just not a lot of catchers out there. I mean, you can really only point to Gary Sanchez as a guy with a similar profile. And I think Sanchez, you know, is an incredible, was an incredible prospect. Um, so, you know, again, Bart is, is right above Ramos. He's my third-ranked prospect. I went back and forth between him and Bart Ramos at three or four. Who knows? I might end up changing it before then. I'm still kind of jostling between them in that 50-plus future value. But I think 
people have um, confidence in Bart as they might have in Posey about a decade ago or just over a decade ago at this point. And, and I just like reiterate, like these are not similar prospects because Posey had the advanced hit tool. And the question was how much power would he be able to bring into games? And it turned out about, you know, league average for the most part, obviously above average for your, for a usual catcher. Bart, the question is how much hit tool will he have to allow his power to play? And I think that's a much more common problem and a much more difficult one um, for players to improve upon. And so I think Bart, you know, is probably very likely to become a average big league, average everyday big league catcher, you know, a good shot to become an above average one. But I, I do think uh, he is not, you know, when you, when you look at the similar trajectories between him and Posey, making the debuts where they struggle in small samples and, and you know, having some strong winter league or fall league performances relatively soon after their drafts, I think people are putting Bart on a tier with Luciano and while Luciano's farther removed in terms of ceiling, I, I think people are putting a bit higher stakes in, into Joey Bart than I think I would. So let's talk more about Bart here real mm -hmm. quick. Patrick Bailey's now also in the system, mm -hmm. and I know a lot of people kind of shrug their shoulders as to why are the Giants getting another catcher? Honestly, I think it, it it's interesting because, you know, who knows, maybe one of them could be dealt for pitching. You know, we never know what's going to happen mm -hmm. with, with some of these guys. So what is what is the thought? between those two like who is why was maybe the question should be why was Patrick Bailey drafted <laughs> I, I think it's it's not too complicated they really like mm -hmm. Patrick Bailey like uh, and Bailey uh, a key component Bailey was willing to take a below slot signing bonus that would enable them to go above slot later for Kyle Harrison you know I don't I don't think they identified my understanding of it is they didn't you know no, Kyle Harrison was going to be the guy, but they knew there were a lot of high school pitchers and they wanted to get one of them and they, cause they knew all of them wouldn't get taken in those top two rounds. And so they said, we're, we're going to target someone in the first round who we believe is a top 15 who deserves to go with this pick. And if we can get someone to take a low enough number when we, when we're, excuse me, where we'll know we have two or two and a half million dollars to give someone later, that's who we're going to go with. And so they went with Bailey because I think they genu genuinely like baby baby Bailey um you know I, I think he has uh you know he kind of has a somewhat similar profile to Bart to some others sort of put it in reverse he, he's really weird in that you you've seen some who say he has the kind of below average hit tool with above average power and you see others who really like the hit tool but think he's pro and that he's probably has 40 grade power that's just playing up because of how advanced his hit tool is so again I'm really interested to see him if we can get him to play some minor league games this year against some, um, you know, minor league competition, because again, you know, I was, you know, scouting a couple of years ago, but, you know, not watching a lot of college games recently, it's harder for me to watch Bailey's college tape and come away with a scouting report. I'm really confident in. So I have to rely more um, than usual on, on the people I talk to. Yeah. And catchers, you know, historically take a while to develop. James mm -hmm. McCann just got his first, um, mm -hmm. Just, just got his first big deal. He's 30 years old. He just kind of came up as of late the last, you know, two, three years. Uh, so it, it, it takes a little time. And I think we're going to get a better understanding in five years of where Joey Bart is, maybe even three years. Um, and uh, sorry to, I guess, get back to the core of your original question, though. I think the Zaidi, you know, we, we've, we've talked about before the podcast, you know, what are they going to do with this glut of corner outfielders, these Jason Fosters, these Darren Ruffs? I think if you get to the heart of the issue, um, and this is sort of, I guess, the, the largest component of, you know, what people think of as money ball at, that, that is really sort of carrying over in this Giants front office, is I think a lot of that they're ignoring about, do we already have a guy or not? They're looking at this. Can we get a player who we think is better than the price we're going to have to pay, if they're good value? If we can trade a piece to, and get something back, that we think is better. We're going to make that trade 80 to 90% of the time, regardless of the position either one plays. And then if we get to a place where we're, you know, in a world series hunt, we need this, then, okay, you know, we can get more aggressive. And, and so I, I really do, do think, you know, drafting Bailey already having Bart Ricardo Genovese actually is probably something I should have mentioned in the underrated. He's a catching prospect. I'm, I'm high on, I think it's overshadowed a bit. I think frankly, international free agents who aren't of the caliber of Luciano actually tend to get overshadowed in prospect rankings just be, because again, 
people don't know what to do with them in terms of not having the extended experience. We see these guys in college baseball and it's weirder. It's a lot of guys get a $600,000, $800,000 bonus in your national free agency, where with the draft, we could say this was a third round pick or the 75th overall selection. And so it's just easier for, I think, people to form those into rankings. Um, but, you know, I, I really think there's zero, almost zero thought that is going into that other than when Michael Holmes is preparing to talk to reporters and knows the first question he's going to be asked is what does this mean for Joey Bart? I think that's about the the first time that's really coming into their radar. At least that's the sense I get from the organization. I don't think that that's a reflection of them being low on Bart or being especially high on Bailey. I, I think it's just them sort of every, every move they're making is going to be based off what their valuation of the player is individually. I think I think uh, international free agents often get overlooked as well because you know we don't we don't watch them on MLB Network yep. you know as we do the draft you know we don't we don't sit there and hear Greg Amsinger with his hair <laughs> uh, analyzing these these prospects it's just kind of like a very quiet you know you, you could easily look past that notification on your phone mm-hmm. that's that the Giants signed someone yep. out of the Dominican Republic it's very easy to overlook. Uh, that piece of news. So, you know, Marco Luciano, I wonder how many people knew that the Giants signed him. I, w- I want to go back and look at how many retweets that, <laughs> that Alex Pavlovich tweet. It's a really good point. Yeah. Because it probably got nothing because, you know, people probably didn't care the way they care about the draft. And, you know, as it turns out, international uh, free agent signings are electric. I mean, they're some of the best players in the game. Juan Soto, Ronald Acuna, the list goes on and on. So it's definitely an interesting point. Um, let's talk about Will Wilson. I want to I want to get Will Wilson real quick. Giants practically bought him from the Angels. Yep. Zach Cozart was, you know, pretty much. They immediately released there. it, right? Like, like yeah. I was actually when they made, when they made the move, I'm like, this could really work out if Cozart like is healthy. This could be an incredible trade. And then they just immediately cut Cozart, ending <laughs> any thoughts. Yeah, they basically paid 13 million dollars to acquire Will Wilson. Yeah, and honestly, I didn't even know how to word Zach Cozart's tenure with the Giants. It was just not a tenure at all. It was just cut. So, yeah. I mean, he he's probably embarrassed. Oh, geez, you know, they did this for Will Wilson. But, yeah, they did do it for Will Wilson. He got Because he got released before the COVID season, he did not get his salary prorated. So he's got that full $13.3 million last season. I think he's doing fine. Yeah, Zach Cozart's just fine. Exactly. <laughs> but... Who is Will? Where does Will Wilson profile? I know I've heard him third baseman, second baseman, um, a guy who's even possibly on the fast track to the big leagues. I mean, give me a kind of a, a quick player profile on Will Wilson. Yeah, I got to talk to Wilson. I did a profile of him, I want to say during last summer while he was at, at the, uh, at the alternate site. It might have been just after he switched from the alternate site over to Instructs. He, it, I guess depending on who you talk to, you know, I mean, he's actually played a good amount of shortstop. I think the answer for the Giants is all of the above. I think it's going to be um, when I talk to him, he goes, yeah, they I've basically every day I'm playing some second, playing some short, playing some third. He was primarily getting reps at second and third, but he's also primarily played shortstop in the past. So I don't take that as them saying he's done playing short as much as they wanted to take advantage and give him as many reps as they could at the newer positions to get him used to that. I think it's, it's really interesting with Wilson because his college profile and his small sample in the pros are very different in college. He was supposed to be this above average hit and power tool guy who was going to, like you said, move very quickly. And then in his debut, and again, it was the year he was drafted. That's always a weird thing because you've basically played a collegiate baseball season. Now you got to go play a pro baseball season. There's obviously a lot of moving parts there, but he struggled at rookie ball relative to what you would expect from a first round pick who, you know, had just um, been drafted out of college and performed quite well. And so you know, one thing is that he hit the ball on the ground a lot. The Giants have been working with him to try to improve his, his launch angle. That was one of the things he talked about that, you know, they showed him how many more expected extra base hits he would have had if he could have just, you know, cut his ground ball rate in half, how, how, how vastly. I think that's ultimately how well he's able to make that adjustment is going to be key. Because if that's something that he can make in by the start of whatever the next minor league season is, he's pretty much got this new swing that's driving the ball, that's elevating the ball more consistently. He's young. He's posted a strong you know, exit velocities pretty consistently. I think he will be on that fast track, and he will be able to play kind of wherever the Giants need at the moment. But, you know, it's a swing change. Like, those are a lot easier said than done. And I think 
we could also expect to see him struggle with some swing and miss struggle, maybe with a high amount of pop outs and stall a bit. So I think it's going to ultimately come down to how well the giants, how well Wilson is able to make those adjustments. Interesting. So, yeah, I've, I've always wondered about Will Wilson. I, I hadn't even taken a big look at him uh, since they acquired him. So that's some interesting things uh, about Will Wilson. So final question here, and this is a big one. Giants are close to winning. They're close to becoming that team that everybody's kind of hoping they want. You know, everybody's trying to erase these last three, four years and they want a good team. You know, it's mm-hmm. been a while, and I think the championships... As every fan should. Let's yes. not, let's not, yeah. The championships really spoiled this fan base uh, in particular. Uh, and they, they're hungry for it. They're hungry for Luciano. They're hungry for Ramos, Bart, Bailey, whatever you want to say. But there's some glaring, you know, issues, as you mentioned, uh, as you maybe did not include the strong positions in the farm system. And in, in your mm-hmm. article, you wrote about the most strong positions. So that leads us to free agency. So mm-hmm. where do you see the Giants spending their money? Because there's a ton of money, as you and I have both heard a million times, money coming off the books with this pitching rotation that they just assembled this offseason. Longoria's got like another year or two after this, mm-hmm. which uh, <laughs> um, I'm like Cueto, Belt, Crawford, mm-hmm. Posey, all of them are going to be gone pretty much or it brought back have at, to be on new contracts that should be yeah, substantially cheaper, very right? substantially yeah. lower price for sure. Um, where do they spend their money, Mark? Cause it's, it's going to be a question that's going to be asked so much. Is it pitching? Cause I know we just talked about how they don't have enough of it. Where are they spending it? <sighs> that's a hard question. Here, here, here's, here's, I'll, I, I'll try to answer it in pieces. The first yeah. part, is if I was running the front office and well, first let me adjust my bank account accordingly and get some other things in order. But the first would be, I mean, yeah, obviously pitching. And I, I think the problem is, and this is where I've started to look ahead to the, the celebrated 2021, 2022 free agent class. It's not a deep pitching free agent group. It is a deep shortstop, deep position player group. And so, you know, I'm curious to see how it handles. I mean, last year, pretty early on in the season, I was saying the Giants should try to sign Kevin Gaussman to a three-year, $45 million extension last season because my logic was, one, $15 million a year is not going to be a problem for them. It's not going to keep them from being aggressive, you know, this coming off season. The second being, if he is really good, he's going to cost a lot more than $15 million a year because, again, I saw last offseason – Frankly, Gaussman and Stroman were on par with Bauer for me. And that's before we get to the off-field stuff, why I was even, you know, lower on Bauer and why, you know, again, you can read my articles and why I didn't think the Giants should sign Bauer. It's a separate thing. But even on field, Gaussman and Bauer, Gaussman and Stroman, I thought, had shown in their recent samples as well as their long-term to actually have an argument to be as good as Bauer. Again, just looking at on-field projections. So I thought the market for Gaussman was going to be quite high. I think they're lucky to get him back on a qualifying offer. But if he repeats what he did last season over 162 game season, I think that's where that is going to have to begin and end. They're going to have to re-sign, I think, Kevin Gaussman. Um, and, and so that's where it's going to be really interesting to see. Again, obviously, they should target some of those young shortstops and, and, and some of those position player stars. But to, I guess, answer the question that more people care about, which is what Farhan Zaidi is going to do, I think it gets back to my answer to the question about Patrick Bailey and Joey Bart. And on my sound, the foghorn podcast, um, you know, this past week, I talked with Ginny Searle, uh, associate editor over baseball prospectus. And we were talking about the giants and trying to figure out what they're going to do. And the thing that's so frustrating, sorry, I just showered and the hair is drying and falling on my face. I've been doing this for the past 30 minutes. Anyway, um, is is there a video component to this? <laughs> <laughs> um, is that the Giants for fans who had the Brian Sabian and Bobby Evans regimes, essentially that ran in a lot of the similar ways, especially at the big league level. Fans always knew what was going to cap. Giants are going to be aggressive on the free agent market. Giants were going to be willing to trade their prospects for any established almost any established veteran who became available, especially if they played a position where they didn't have an already proven big league ready starter. Mm. Zaidi has 
pretty much, in my opinion, when it comes to roster construction, zero tendencies. I don't think he's inclined to spend in free agency in a particular way. I don't think he's inclined to make trades a certain way. I don't think, I think Zaidi works from the premise of, like I talked about before, if we can get a better player than the cost it will take to get the better player, we are going to do that over and over again. Don't care where. And then we'll sort it out when we have to sort it out. And so to answer the question, it, it depends on, you know, what these internal evaluations of prospects are, right? If, if I'm the Giants and I say, hey, Marco Luciano, I think he's going to be a really good player. But you know what? He's, I don't think he's going to be a future star. I think he's more of an above average starter. I think Farhan Zaidi is going to say, hey, maybe we can take advantage, right, of this gap in our evaluation. This is something someone I talked to who was familiar with the Cubs front office talked about. The Cubs front office was lower on Glaber Torres than consensus. Their analytical models and basically said that they thought Torres was going to be a really good player, but not necessarily going to be the, you know, a Fernando Tazis Jr. or whatever. And that's what ultimately made it easier for them to pull the trigger on moving him for Chapman. We have no idea who those prospects are in the Giants system. We have no idea if any, if the Giants have any of those prospects in the system. Maybe the Giants think everyone's overlooking their prospects and they have Kyle Harrison as an ace and you know all these guys who are actually going to fill certain roles that we're not expecting. Because the problem is, like you said, because of all these free agents, you can look at no position. There is zero, there are zero positions on this current Giants roster where I can point to the 2023 season and you can tell me with any certainty who's going to be starting there right now. And, you know, again, I think it's frustrating for fans. It requires patience, but I also think we're getting to, we're approaching that point where I think we are, you know, it's okay and justifiable to be more critical of Zaidi if we don't see him starting to put some of these chips in play this coming off season. Because if, if it's not spending in free agency for a pitcher, although to be fair, I mentioned it's weaker. There is no cinder garden. If he has a bounce back year, he could become a premium arm. And you know, you never know um, with who could become available, but then if it's going to be on the trade market and elsewhere, I think it is getting to the point where when he came in, people said the giants don't have many chips to play. So just wait it out acquire all the chips you can. He's done a fantastic job of that. Mike Estremski, Donovan Solano, all, all these, you know, Sam Selman, all these different guys, all these different levels, you know, Patrick Bailey in the draft and all these other things, um, Jalen Davis. But now he's accumulated these chips and now we got to see how he starts playing them, right? That was something the Padres with A.J. Preller, when he first got hired, he was, it seemed like they had a top 10 system. They had some borderline big league talent and Preller got aggressive quickly. And people forget about before the Padres built what looks like is going to be another dynasty in the NL West. They put all their chips on the table and signed James Shields and traded for the Upton brothers and, you know, traded for Matt Kemp, traded Yasmani Grandal, by the way, to do it, you know, and traded for Craig Kimbrell only for it all to blow up and then Preller have to take it down. And he did so wonderfully. He got Fernando Tatis Jr. for Shields. He got a ton of prospects in doing so. And now he's built it the second time around. But, you know, before he did this, I was telling a friend who was a Padres fan, I know Preller can acquire young talent. I know he can build a foundation. He can build a farm system. I don't know if he can build a contender. And I think we'll see how it plays out this year. I, I believe he's proven that and the Padres are, you know, set up well for the next number of years. Now, I think that question turns to Farhan Zaidi. I know he can acquire really good big league talent at a lot lower price than you'd expect through waivers, through these minor trades. I know he can accumulate depth and, and build a strong player development apparatus, or at least I feel fairly confident in that. What I don't know is how aggressive is he going to be in free agency? How aggressive is he going to be in trades to get the proven players who are going to have to come at a premium price? Who is he willing to do that for? Who isn't he willing to do that for? And ultimately, how good he is at doing that is going to determine if the Giants are able to get to the tier that the Padres and Dodgers are currently at. So I don't think Zaidi will ever... I'm sure you're going to agree with me. I don't think Zaidi is going to go with a 10 year deal. And, and as you mentioned, there, there's no starting pitchers that would be even close, remotely close to receiving yeah. Max Scherzer or John Lester money. Mm -hmm. But it seems like those are the only two long-term starting pitching deals that have somewhat worked out. It's crazy. Um, 
let's real quick before we i know i said that was a no you're, you're all good hey i don't got i, I got time i i pre-wrote a lot of stuff this morning so i could so i could give myself some flexibility so you're good you there you go else. short stops I, I mean that mm-hmm. that's such an interesting thing because i think it all depends on how they view luciano because yep. but it, it's interesting because i don't see them going after uh First of all, I think some of these guys are going to get re-signed. Lindor, I think, is pretty much locked to yeah. get re-signed. Seager, I think, is not too far behind. Um, but Seager and Correa, they're on their way to third base anyway, I think. So why would you sign? You know, would they want to if that's in the package and they say, Why would I sign here? You have a top shortstop prospect right here who's pretty much going to play shortstop. That leaves me to be shifted over to third. I don't want to play here. So, you know, these guys are going to want to take a – they're going to end up moving the third base, but they're going to want to play shortstop. For, it's interesting. I mean, and again, to be mm-hmm. fair, right, you know, I think it's – I think that's going to be a key question because I think the Giants' plan would be to sign with these guys to play shortstop alongside Longoria, yeah. hoping that Luciano is ready for 2020 – for, you know, to make a debut in 2022, but probably – more realistically to be a, a legitimate contributor in 2023 when at that point they could head into the offseason planning to move the Seeger, the Trevor Story, although Story's probably one of the guys who wouldn't have to move the third as quickly or whatever, move them to third for Luciano or slot Luciano in at third if they think um, you know that's where he's ultimately going to end up. Yeah, I, I think I think it's it all depends on how they view him. If there is a kind of a stopgap where Luciano is going to be a regular contributor, like you said, in 2023. Would it be, you know, a bad move to sign a guy like Didi Gregorius to play shortstop for a year and then deal him? And then would that be something that you could see happening? I could see again, like I've really struggled because, you know, I kind of make, um, you know, I love the prospect stuff. That's the passion. But I think I make the I get the most clicks for my like rumor trade speculation, Giants move speculation stuff. And, and that's been um, the struggle when it comes to Zaidi because of that unpredictability. I mean, frankly, I don't think it's out of the question that Brandon Belt, Buster Posey and Brandon Crawford are on the team next year that they resign on one year deals. I don't necessarily think it's particularly likely, but, you know, I, I don't think they've made any decision. Like, I don't think they were opposed to re-signing Madison Bumgarner. It's just once they saw where the market went, they were pretty content moving on. So, you know, I do think um, there, I I really think nothing's off the table in the most frustrating way possible for fans, because since nothing's off the table, you can discern virtually nothing from everything that's on. Yeah. I think, I think the only way, the only player out of all those guys I could see signing back is Brandon Belt. Because I think he most fits the mold of. I agree. I think the I I think don't underestimate Posey because mm-hmm. in part because again I, people have talked about you know Zaidi doesn't care about branding marketing blah blah that's Bumgarner walk you, you know I I disagree I think Zaidi um, is not going to prioritize that over other things but I do think that will be a tiebreaker and you know again Joey Bart struggled last year like there's no way around it. Um, the Giants front office, I think the player development team, I think most around baseball, again, like I think most around baseball, by the way, would disagree with me that I, that I think they'd say I'm too low on Bart. So I want to make that clear. I think most around baseball expect, you know, Bart to be ready to be a, a big league everyday player next season. But it's not out of the question that, you know, I mean, even if it's just an injury, I, I think it could delay the timeline um, a year, even if he is performing well. So no, I, I think Posey isn't one to overlook. I, I think Posey is probably actually, I think it's more likely that the Giants want to bring Posey back and he decides to go elsewhere than the other way around. Mark, do you play out of the park baseball? I, I play, I, I used to play it a lot more before I've been busy, but yes, I've played quite a bit. I could just imagine you absolutely dominating <laughs> that game completely. Just dominating, I, I, not just like, not the obvious parts of the game, but getting like a, a solid third player return in a trade, just like I spent searching for so hours. Much, I spent so much time, right? Cause you, you know, it gives you the immediate trade reaction, right? So I just go through all the prospects and just add as many prospects as I could, as much cash as I could. Yes. I, I did. I spent a lot of time filling in the depth on my, in my organization, just hours <laughs> trying to find like that, that third player in the deal. Like I, I could just who, imagine who has like two and a half instead of two star potential, you know, yeah, it's like exactly. That, my new exactly. show. That's awesome. 
Mark, I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, a lot of great insight. We could sit here for hours and discuss the future of this team because in the future of the division, for sure. Yeah. Um, but it was a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you uh, for having me on. And again, to anyone out there who wants to check out um, the piece that we talked about, you can go on over to aroundthefoghorn.com or give me a follow on Twitter at Mad Deluki. That is M-A-D-D-E-L-U-C-C-H-I. Yeah, and I know the majority of you guys listening or watching probably thought it was Delucci. It's not. <laughs> it's Deluki. Okay. There's That's some the breaking things, news. Yes. There's some things on 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 the internet that you just flat out have not said out loud, like the guy's name for baseball prospectus that you mentioned. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and yours is one of them. So I had to listen to a podcast <laughs> of yours to get that right. Hey, I could give you credit for coming in ready. There we go. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for watching. Subscribe, like, do all that fun stuff. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening. Even give us a review. Um, More content on the way. A lot of fun stuff coming up. Be sure to uh, keep up with us and follow us on social media at RizzoCast, R-I-Z-Z-O-C-A-S-T. And if you're brave enough and if you're stupid enough, follow me on Twitter at Steven Risotto, S-T-E-V-E-N-R-I-S-S-O-T-T-O. Thank you guys for listening and have a great day.